The title of my message this morning is The Long Gray Line. The text that we'll be looking at is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The Long Gray Line is, of course, a reference to West Point cadets. The Long Gray Line of soldiers, officers in training from class to class. They have formed a living chain of those who have faithfully served. It's an apropos analogy or illustration of our text this morning. Paul's desire to entrust a treasure that might be handed on to others. The long gray line is, of course, also a title of a movie starring Tyrone Powers and Maureen O'Hara, the 1955 uh, movie that has a lot of great footage of the Academy and uh, tells a story of an Irish immigrant who served the Academy for over 50 years, working hard and, and working his way up the, the, the chain of command from a simple server to eventually becoming an officer, demonstrating that commitment to duty, honor, and country, which is the, the, uh, the motto or the credo of, of the Academy. And that movie has terrific footage of the Academy, and one of the little sidelights to it, the little side stories, is the amazing class of 1915, the class upon which the stars fell, as they say. And out of that class came two five-star generals, three, I'm sorry, seven three-star generals, and uh, two four-star generals, and seven three-star generals. I think I've got that right. A lot of generals. The class on which the stars fell, the class of 1915. Well, from generation to generation... That living chain formed a, a mechanism by which the defense of our country has been passed on. Paul is very fond of, of using military illustrations from everyday life and he uses one in this passage that we look at today. In 1 Timothy chapter 1.18, he talks about fighting the good fight to Timothy. In other letters, he's called his co-workers good soldiers. He's used a soldier's armament to teach us about spiritual warfare. And in this text today, he says, Endure hardship, share in suffering like a good soldier with us in service of Christ Jesus. What hardships does Timothy face what hardships do you face today? We know Paul's suffering. He's in prison, not a, a comfortable house arrest, but in the dungeon, maybe uh, chained with other gentlemen down in the pit, so to speak. He's in lockdown. And Paul encourages Timothy to face the challenges that Timothy faces, the stigma and the political risk of proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And Paul says to Timothy and to us, the king's faithful soldiers will suffer. They mean they need to remain at their post. But not all do. Not all hang in. Not all make it. Recall that in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, he contrasts a faithful example on Isiphorus with two guys, Phagellus and Hermogenes, who don't make it, who are not faithful to their charge. Not all make it. John MacArthur, the pastor, not the general, 
says, I'll never forget walking into a staff meeting one day many years ago where five young guys whom I had personally discipled were waiting for me. I cared for those men, having met them in the early mornings during the week to go over spiritual things and pray with them and build them into a staff of pastors who worked alongside me. As I walked in, I couldn't help saying, I just want to tell you guys how much I love you. To which one of them responded, if you think we're your friends, you've got another thing coming. They then tried to muster support from the rest of the staff and elders to depose me as pastor, MacArthur writes, and take me out of the pulpit. They failed, but the sad fallout was that four out of five men left ministry for life. It was almost more than I could bear, says Dr. MacArthur. Like MacArthur, I've seen many not make it. I was cleaning out the final box in my office, the last remaining, actually two boxes that had been lurking behind, hiding behind my office chair, waiting patiently for me to unpack them. All the other things were in place, more or less. And as I was cleaning out those final boxes about a month ago, I found a memento of a brochure of a, brochure of a church where I had interned. And it had a, a rather goofy picture of myself in it, and it made me laugh. I had a good laugh at that, and I started to look at, at this. It was a large staff and a large church with many interns as well, and, and I began to, to look at all of the, the guys and their descriptors next to their names. And I was stunned at how many were no longer in ministry. Almost half didn't make it. Several had affairs, several uh, quit, several uh, had, had breakdowns. Why? Statistics bear out my and MacArthur's anecdotal evidence. 50% of ministers starting out will not last five years. One out of ten ministers will actually uh, retire as a minister in some form. 80% believe pastoral ministry negatively affected their families. 90% feel inadequately trained to cope, 90% inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands. 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their role. 70% of pastors fight depression. 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. 40% report serious conflict with a parishioner at least one time a month. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. 94% of clergy families feel the pressures of the pastor's ministry, and 80% of spouses feel the pastor is overworked. Over 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month last year when this survey was conducted. Now, the number one reason they leave, according to this amalgamation of these surveys done by the Fuller Institute, the George Barna Institute, and Pastoral Care Institute, the number one reason that they leave the ministry is that church people are not willing to go the same direction in the goal of the pastor. And pastors believe God wants them to go in one direction, but the people are not willing to follow or change. 
This is why they tend to, to burn out. That long gray line, that living chain, has a lot of gaps in it. And I believe that this epistle to a successful, though suffering, apostolic leader entrusting this amazing treasure to his young protege holds the keys for us to make it as pastors and ministers and corporately together to build the kind of church community that can raise up redwoods that last, whose roots go down deep, who can produce good and sturdy fruit and leave a lasting legacy. That's what I am aiming for. That's what I want for me and my household, for my young son who's launching out in in pastoral ministry. That's what I want for him and for me. And that's the kind of church we need to fashion and form together. As I've said in this series, it takes a church to raise a pastor. It takes a church to to strengthen a family of God that can produce servant leaders who will stand in that long gray line, arm in arm, with their churches and their parishioners. Now, Timothy is a battle-scarred warrior. He's often, I think, over-categorized as, as being afraid or timid. He, he struggles with that, yes, but he's, he's not without experience and toughness. He's Paul's troubleshooter, sent to tough places. He's a very experienced leader. And from jail, Paul is concerned that he remains a living link in the chain as Paul himself faces his death, faithful to his call to do his duty, to honor his Lord above all things. He reminds Timothy that the promise of life is in Christ and in Christ alone, and that he is to fan into flame and be continually strengthened by God's grace through the word invested in him. And this will, by the Spirit's power, break the power of shame so that the gospel will burn brightly against opposition. And so he exhorts his young protege in chapter 1 to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to guard the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. He says in verse 13, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, this pattern of of doctrinal truth, this framework, this shape of the boundaries of truth, Paul says to Timothy, hold to it, cherish it, remind yourself of it. God will help you not be ashamed of the gospel, Paul's saying to Timothy and to us. He will guard the gospel invested in you. He will empower you to follow Paul's example and endure hardship. The letter is littered with verses that support that statement. Being an unashamed worker who is not ashamed of testifying about the gospel will enable Timothy and you and me and us together to fulfill the church's ministry of entrusting the gospel to reliable leaders who will in turn teach others. We will then do our duty, go the distance, receive our reward, Leave that lasting legacy with no gaps in the long gray line of gospel ministry. That is our aim. That is our purpose. That is our vision. 
Not something I invented in my head, but something that has been given to me through the Holy Scriptures, entrusted to us together to guard, to keep, and to pass on. And so we need to be continuously strengthened, our text says. Continuously strengthened is the implication of the Greek here. An ongoing strengthening by grace in order to entrust this sacred treasure to faithful men and to faithful women who will in turn teach others. This is one of the key verses of of my life, this entrusting of the treasure of the gospel to others. It's it's a passion that I hold deeply in my heart, though inadequately implemented. It's something that I, together with you, strive to grow up into and to attain to. You then, my son, the apostle says. Notice the affection, the personal touch. You, my child, my son, my daughter, be strong, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, the the strengthening grace that comes in union with Christ. It's as though there's a, a giant vat of grace that's continually overflowing to his people. We have so many precious promises of God's grace. He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, churches close their doors, yes, but God's church goes on. And he will build it. He will build it. And he will receive glory through it. And he is intensely interested in unzippering heaven so that that glorious grace might be poured out on us today. Be strengthened by that grace. Be strong in it. That is in and only in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say. Notice the careful attention to the apostolic teaching the things you've heard me say, preach and teach in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. This word in trust is a loaded word. It carries the idea of depositing a valuable for safekeeping. Now he mentions really four generations in this one verse. Paul has a a long-term view here of what the church is to be and how the gospel is to be handed on. The first generation is is him, the, the apostle who has actually seen the risen Christ. The second generation is Timothy, the apostolic delegate who's been entrusted with cleaning up some issues at the church of Ephesus where he is now serving. And then he's to, Timothy, to add to that list of generations the men that he's going to teach. And then they, in turn, will teach others. Four generations mentioned in one verse. But what if there's a gap? What if there is a hole in the living chain, the long gray line? William Barclay writes, the teacher is the link in the living chain which stretches unbroken from this present moment in Paul's and Timothy's life back to Jesus Christ. The glory of teaching, Barclay says, is that it links the present with the earthly life of Jesus Christ. One link, one generation at a time. Paul then launches into three wonderful illustrations that clarify the point he's trying to make. The three are the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. He says, share in suffering with single-minded devotion. Listen, endure hardship, he says, 
with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. That phrase takes on slightly different nuance in our context today, civilian affairs. No one serving as a soldier gets involved. He wants to please his commanding officer. Now, the recruiting posters say it's the toughest job you'll ever love. I, 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 I hope that's true for most of those guys. I heard some alarming stats the other day that the average age of the soldiers serving today are 19, is 19 years old when they enlist, 19. World War II was something like 29, 26, somewhere around in there. It's 19 today. Those guys are so young. Quite honestly, it's, uh, it is a pretty tough job. I also read in that same article that the suicide rate among returning veterans is so out of control and so high that if I told you what it was, it would shock you. It's the toughest job that you'll ever try to love, maybe. It would be a more honest expression of what it means to be a soldier. A soldier can't spend any time being committed to civilian affairs Paul, perhaps, is thinking of the Roman code of Theodosius, which said, we forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. A soldier must go through rigorous training that focuses on military tasks and doing daily duties in a routinized way. Normal freedoms are sacrificed. Fatigue due to sleep deprivation is very common. He must listen to his commanding officer without hesitation, and maintain discipline, maintain readiness, not be sidetracked, not be distracted, not be derailed, or he will displease his commanding officer. More importantly, he may be dead if he doesn't obey commands or cause harm to one of his comrades in arms. The point that Paul's trying to make here is don't be distracted from the ministry that he has called you to, John Panner, and you to, Christ Church at Grove Farm. Don't be distracted from those gifts and callings. Fan them in the flame and use them to entrust the gospel to the next generation. The second illustration he uses is that of the athlete. The athlete must obey God's rules in disciplined training in order to win. Verse 5, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, Paul says, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. Now, evidently in those days, the Olympic Games and the Isthmian Games required an oath to Zeus, stating that you had trained for 10 months prior to the competition, that you had completed the regimen and and followed the rules for training. If you hadn't trained, you weren't allowed to compete, and you had to pledge an oath to Zeus. So you couldn't do the first century equivalent of what uh, Lance Armstrong did. So grieved to learn that all those allegations, I defended them for years. And we lived in Austin for all those years, and, and Lance Armstrong, being from Austin, was such a hero. And to find out that all those accusations by the French authorities that I just assumed were indictments against a good American were actually true. He broke all the rules. And God says that if you want to receive the victor's crown, you've got to obey his rules. You can't earn that crown. You can't achieve that reward otherwise. You have to compete according to God's rules. What dedication an athlete must bring to his task 
My son, when he was training for an NCAA championship, had to forgo all kinds of activities that his peers were free to do. He was out the door at 7 a.m. to paint houses. Then he would come home, grab something to eat, lift weights in the garage or sneak into the high school to use the leg press and then he'd hit the court for games and then he would find his, his, his dad who would throw the ball back to him like a machine over and over and over again for hours and I would push him in shooting drills and bang him with my body and wave the broom over him as he was trying to shoot to, to get him to uh, be used to shooting over seven footers. And he had to study to maintain his academic scholarships and forego a ton of tomfoolery. And it paid off with a victor's wreath, academic honors, and, and nominated to be Division Three Player of the Year. Took dedication and sacrifice. And so does pastoral ministry. Humbling to me, really. For one, so who easily caves in to pressure? of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, have mercy. The third illustration Paul uses is that of the farmer. And the farmer expects to be the first to receive a share of the crops. But that farmer, the text says, needs to be a hardworking farmer, not a, not a tenant farmer, an owner who's kicked back and letting others do the work which was common in the first century and is common today. Paul's referring to the guy that's doing the hands-on work here, not, not the one that is kicked back and taking most of the profits and giving out only a pittance to the laborer. No, the hard-working farmer, Paul says, should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Sowing the word of God oftentimes takes time for that word to produce the fruit and the intended consequences that God has ordained for it. It requires hard work, early hours, setbacks, bad weather, hard work added to favorable conditions will produce this miraculous thing called fruit, growth. No one really knows how it happens we know that if you put the seed in the ground, if you tend it carefully in the right kind of soil, if the water is just about right, if the sunlight is just about right, if the growing season is, is just about right, up comes something that is nourishing to others. So many factors can get in the way to hinder that. Imagine how difficult it would have been to be a farmer in the first century. No air-conditioned giant tractor with your favorite talk radio or music or Bible preacher blaring into the cabin as you plow through your fields. I love my friends who are farmers in Ohio, and they have these giant corporation-type farms with tens of thousands of acres. It's, it's agribusiness. No, in the first century, it was a lot of, a lot of hands-on, hard work. And, and Paul says, this illustrates what pastoral ministry is meant to be and what our life together should create as a, as a church community. And the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive that share. What do these three illustrations have in common? Well, rigor... There's this intensity. The things are hard. 
There's a single-minded focus on work with an expectation of some reward, the, the victory won. There's realities of obedience uh, to those realities, and most of those realities are really outside your control. You have a, a, a commanding officer. You can't control him. You have rules of competition, which you did not write, and you have weather, which is completely and utterly out of your control. And you have to live and deal with those realities. I think these illustrations point to being faithful given the realities that are hard. Those realities are no different today than they were in, in, in past generations. Slightly different perhaps, but, but no different really. The human heart has not really changed dramatically in 2,000 years. We still struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and, and there's still opposition to the gospel as there always has been. Those realities pretty much remain the same with greater or lesser intensities generation in and generation out. The third thing they have in common is rest. Rest. When the soldier is not at war, he still needs to be prepared, but he is at rest. He's training, but he's, he's not in the intensity of the battle all the time, at least hopefully not. When you're not competing, you're still training, yes, but you're not competing. You, there's no intensity of the competition. And when the ground is fallow, the, the farmer prepares his equipment or works his side business perhaps, but the, the rigor of the 16-hour days to bring the harvest in is, is, is not present in, in the fallow season. And then, of course, rewards. The fourth common thing that these illustrations have together is a, a desire uh, to please the commanding officer, to win the battle, and to achieve the, the victor's wreath for winning the battle, for winning the athletic competition and the first fruits of a faithfully farmed piece of land that under God's sovereignty produces and yields a thanksgiving harvest unto him. Friend, it takes a church, it takes a church to create an environment, a culture where families can raise children, some of whom will be called to pastoral ministry, some of whom will be called to missionary service, some of whom will be called to name the name of Christ in the marketplace in a myriad of ways that none of us could even possibly contemplate. And it takes a long gray line of officers, church officers, elders and deacons, wardens and, and ministry heads who maintain their loyalty to their king, fulfill their duty. God has been so gracious to us as a church to deposit grace in us and to be continually willing to strengthen us with that grace in union with Christ together. So gracious to us. I think of the grace that he's given me. I'm, I'm often overwhelmed with his kindness to me. How many times I've been faithless and yet he has been faithful to me and to you and to his church. So we should not be ashamed of this grace that's been entrusted to us, but should joyfully and gladly share it with others. In fact, we need to lavish our life in response, in gratitude for that great grace, in service to others. 
That's all of our calls collectively together to lavish our life on our king, our commanding officer. This includes, of course, investing time in people, in ministry, in service, in businesses that produce life for families. Oh, how I know the struggle of business owners who don't want to lay off people. They sincerely work hard in order to create an environment in their business where others can, 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 can receive income for their families. That, too, is a calling. That, too, is an honorable duty if done under God. The church must raise up the next link in the chain. We don't do it. Who's going to do it? Who will? Is there another church in the area that maybe that will be the church that raises up pastors and servant leaders and missionaries? Should we, should we, should we send that out? Should we outsource that? Or should we, 30, 40, 50 years from now, be known as a church that, that raised up lots of church planters, lots of people who went in to reinvigorate churches, lots of people who went into to the mission field out of this church? Isn't that a worthy thing for this church to ded- dedicate itself to? Yes. I believe it is. See, I don't think it's just about filling this auditorium to come here, you know, entertaining sermons. That, that's, that is, you know, that is a, a paltry, a paltry fake goal. That's a fake goal. The goal is for us to build a, a healthy church that imparts life to others. Be part of that long gray line. Pray that your pastor finishes well, is faithful, and God holds on to me. You know, and all of our staff, we've seen some things in this church. Not, you, know, we've, you know the history if you've been here a while. We've, we've had our bumps here too. We need God's grace to hold on to us and be strengthened by it. And then with his mighty power working in us, be killing sin as the great John Owen said, before it kills us. God is gracious to deposit grace in us. Let's not be ashamed or afraid to lavish our life on him. And friend, that includes time, one-on-one investment in others, small group investment in others, classes investment in others. It requires your talents, your unique special gifts applied in service to the Great Commission of making and nurturing disciples. And, don't miss this, don't miss this, it requires treasure. It takes money to make this thing go. It just absolutely does. And I am not ashamed to ask you this morning to pledge generously in 2013. This church requires your dedicated service of giving. And I thank God for every penny. It's not equal amounts that we're after, but generous, good-hearted, cheerful giving, equal sacrifice as we stand together in that long gray line. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this exhortation from Scripture to endure suffering like a good soldier. Help us to guard the gospel. Help us to persevere through opposition 
Help us, Lord, to entrust it with strength that is emboldened by grace to others to preserve that gospel and pass it on. And all for your glory, Lord, and all for our great blessing as we partner with you in this great work. Amen.